Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jeff Yonker. He's the CEO of San Diego-based Belhara Therapeutics. It's a startup that came out of stealth mode in January 2023 with a $50 million Series A financing from Versant Ventures and a partnership with Genentech. I wrote about it at the time on TimmermanReport.com and am providing a link for subscribers in the show notes. The investment is supporting a new method for discovering traditional small molecule chemical compounds that make up the majority of drugs. Belhara is based on scientific work at Scripps Research in San Diego. Scientists there envisioned a way of discovering new targets on proteins that small molecules can hit. Small molecules sometimes tend to get upstaged because they have been around for so long. Scientists tend to get excited about new treatment paradigms like cell therapy, gene therapy, gene editing, antibody drug conjugates, targeted radiotherapies, and the list goes on. But when scientists can discover a new way of binding with a disease protein, and they can do it with a convenient pill that patients can take by mouth, that can be a pretty compelling thing. Advances in small molecule chemistry have opened up new targets like KRAS, a protein found in many types of cancer that was long considered undruggable, but is now actually quite druggable. Jeff comes to this opportunity after a long career in biotech business development. We talk about the circumstances that allowed him to get into this industry with a legal background and how he thinks about partnering and some of the current challenges in developing this type of small molecule treatment. Now, please join me and Jeff Yonker on the long run. Jeff Yonker, welcome to the long run. Hey, it's great to be here, Luke. Thank you for having me. So I think we're going to have fun today, Jeff, talking about a little known story in biotech, that there's something of a renaissance in small molecule drug discovery, old school small molecules going through a a new revival. Um, And I think you're going to be able to uh, help people better understand what's what's happening here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Old things are new for sure. Um, I think we're seeing that happening. Cool. So just for starters, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, where do you come from? Yeah. So I, uh, I joke, I'm a bit of an accidental tourist in biotech. Um, I, I know so many people that, that, um, spent years and years training, uh, to do what they do in this industry. I know some people who had like their laser sights locked on biotech from an early day, you know, in their careers. And I, I quite literally stumbled into this industry. Um, I, I was heading into public policy and politics. I, uh, I, I mean, I even did a master's degree in counterterrorism. I was doing stuff totally on related to any of this. I, I have not taken a science course since high school. You know, Jeff, this is really interesting and worth repeating to a lot of the young people out there. I mean, I, I'm kind of an accidental tourist, too. I discovered biotech at age 26 as a journalist. I didn't know anything about it until then. And I found it to be a, a, a passion. I've stuck with it ever since. No, I'm, um, I'm with you. It's it's and it's it's the people, right? I mean, that's that's sort of what has grabbed me. Um, it's just the clinicians and the researchers that we work with um, are just some of the finest people in the world, and I love that that we get a chance to work with them. Well, let's rewind all, like, all the way back to the beginning. So, wh- where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in Southern California, uh, Pasadena area, and uh, yeah, uh, hills of the San Gabriel Mountains, and and uh, just a fantastic place to be, uh, especially in the, in, uh, in the sunny seventies. What did your parents do? 
So my dad uh, is a chemical engineer, um, and uh, but he ended up becoming a lawyer um, and kind of working in environmental law. And then my mom was a kindergarten teacher um, and spent uh, almost 30 years teaching kindergarten. Um, so uh, she brought the patience to the family. <laughs> cool. Any uh, siblings? Yep. I've got a younger sister um, and uh, three years younger who's fantastic. She's out in Colorado and actually works in the industry as well. Um, so uh, didn't head out that way herself, um, but is a medical sales liaison, um, and does, uh, does work with some of the, uh, the top hospitals in, in the Denver area. Now, what kind of schools did you attend? So again, I was, I was thinking very much of going into public policy. So, uh, after high school, I went to Claremont McKenna, which is a, a very much kind of a government economics, you know, public policy oriented school and had a great time there and, and, uh, and really loved that, that environment. And then ended up getting a chance to do a, a fellowship over in the UK. And so um, picked the University of St. Andrews. Um, so uh, not so much because of the golf, though I did do a little of that, but, uh, but because they had um, one of the best uh, terrorism programs in the world. And it was pretty clear in a post, you know, kind of Cold War world that, that low-level conflict was on the rise. And so um, terrorism was definitely something that was becoming a bigger issue. And so uh, I went and, and, and did a program that, that was studying counter and anti-terrorism. Um, <laughs> I was hanging out with a bunch of, of uh, military people and spooks. I was one of the only people that wasn't uh, wasn't in the business. Um, but I, I And so then I headed to law school still with that idea that, that like I was going to go and, and kind of pursue that kind of a life. And I was about halfway through law school when I woke up and realized that I just don't have a stomach for for the political world and uh i mean seeing what's happened in the last whatever 25 30 years you can imagine how how well my idealistic uh outlook would have fared uh in that world and so i i I headed out to, to Palo Alto um to work at a at a law firm Wilson Sonsini that had a reputation for being like the least legal legal outfit in in the country <laughs> and and now what year what year are we talking here that you came out to the bay area 97 um, and so, oh, okay. So the, the, uh, the internet boom, the first one was just ramping up. Yeah, no rockets were on the, on the launcher and everything was really taken off and it was a cool place to be. And, and so that was part of it was, was I, I came out here and, and started working with all of the industries in the Valley. Um, and it was working with Ken Clark and the team there that, that does, you know, the strategic deals between companies, right? So it's the collaborations and the partnerships and asset acquisitions and things like that. And but it was all comers. And so I worked with I worked with the Google guys when they were still in beta. And I worked with, uh, you know, a bunch of Internet uh, companies trying to I mean, just some of the ones that make you grimace pets.com and, and people PC and some of these just like horrific business models. And uh, but I, I started dabbling a little bit with the life sciences and then the dot com bust came. And the life science companies were, you know, the better clients at that point. But by that time, I also um there's a part of our industry that I think a lot of folks don't appreciate that maybe haven't worked in others. And, and that is this, that, that one of the things about the way we work is there ultimately is a truth that comes out. And whether that comes from experimental data or that comes from a clinical trial or comes from an FDA decision, or it may even come in the marketplace, right, with enough uh, experience. But, but someday there is a truth and it's not just what you say the product is. You can't just like hold this product up at a, at a launch event and say it does this and not ultimately be held accountable for that. And I loved that. I, that idealistic part of me really liked the idea that there was sort of a true North um, that ultimately would win the day. And what it means for the industry is that 
you don't have the same ability to just package and spin, right? So other industries, you know, they can launch a product and, and yeah, yeah, that'll be a, that'll be a feature in 2.0. I know we promised that, but, but, you know, that's, that's going to be it, you know? And so they have this ability to shape the story because it really isn't tethered to any particular measurable truth. When you're dealing with science and, and medicine, you do. And, and ultimately, you have to prove it. And that's the correct standard. And it also means that the kind of people that get into this business and the, and the culture of the, of the companies that we build are very different. And, and that made a big difference to me. This is such an important point that I think is not widely understood in the public that, for instance, when, when you have a cancer drug that passes muster with the FDA and it improves survival time, that's different than when someone makes a claim about a vitamin or mineral supplement. That it's just not even close. So you're right. There is that that validation that that um, that pressure cooker that these companies have to go through to demonstrate that their thing does what it's supposed to do. More often than not, I mean that this mathematically, scientifically validated. And, and it's, you know, there's, there's an incredible challenge in that, right? And I think that, that many of us are in this industry because we're drawn to that, right? It's hard and, and we like the challenge because, you know, I, I, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but I've had the chance to play a very small part in some products that made it to market and, and they're now treating patients. And when you meet somebody who's walking this earth who wouldn't otherwise be here, because of a product that you had a small role in. I mean, I, I'll sign up for that like every day, right? And even if it takes us five or 10 or 15 years, it's still worth doing. And, and so I think that that's, it's the combination of the two, that it's, it's the challenge, but also that it's the, you know, the ultimate deliverable is so valuable. Yeah. So what were some of the clients that you got exposed to there in, uh, as a young lawyer? At Wilson Sassini. Well, that's part of the story because it it it, it just sort of happened that I ended up um, representing a, a handful of companies that were all either spun out of Genentech or had licensed things out of Genentech, and so um, you know it was Intermune and Renat and Tersica and Baxgen. Um, I'm forgetting a few, but but I ended up in negotiations with Genentech a lot, and. Um, and so then one day they called me and they said, all right, enough, come work for us. <laughs> and, and I said, no, <laughs> um, uh, they, they, you know, they, they weren't the easiest people to negotiate with. Um, and I, I just thought that, you know, I didn't want to be a part of that. And, um, <laughs> and some older, wiser, um, and more knowledgeable folks, um, Nick Simon, uh, Dennis Henner at MPM back in that day, um, pulled me aside, uh, Rod Ferguson, folks who'd been extant in tech. And I'm like, kid, you know, you need to learn the, the, the art and the science of drug discovery. What was hard about negotiating with them from the other side? Well, and they're now a good partner of ours. So I gotta be too, a little, you know, I think that, that, um, and, and obviously, I was part of Genentech for a long time, and I'm a huge fan of theirs uh, still. I, I think that it is such a science-driven organization, um, and I think the research team has such a significant say in the way things work there. And that's, again, I think that's part of the, the secret sauce. But they're not necessarily the best at understanding business realities. And so I think sometimes what happens is that 
the, the researchers say, hey, I want this, you know, and I think we should do this. And what about that? And, you know, I think that part of the job of the business people is to sort of keep things within certain bounds. And, and I think at times, depending on who you were working with on the science side and the business side, that didn't always happen maybe as well as it could have. Um, Prove it this way. How about that way? Yeah. And also, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I mean, they don't treat their own programs any differently. So it's not like they're being, uh, you know, a, a sort of biased in their partnering discussions. It's just that they have such high standards and they kind of ask for the sun, the moon, the stars. Right. And I watched us do this with our own programs back when I was there. But OK, so so you ended up you, these uh, older, wiser uh, hands of the industry talked you into uh, if you want to work in this industry long term, say yes, go work there, learn a few things. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly because I knew. I think I joined Wilson Sonsini knowing I wanted to leave, right? I mean, I was not going to be a lawyer. Um, I remember, and he's really dating me, but I, I so first day of law school, um, and then they, they had an overhead projector, you know, with the, the transparencies, and they were, they, they, we'd um, done a, a Myers-Briggs. I'd never taken that inventory before, and they were showing us, like, the 16 quadrants for our class, and I was, like, a bit of an outlier. And then they layered on, like, you know, the last few Columbia classes. And then they showed like the legal profession as a whole. And it just got worse, right? With all the data points, I was getting more and more, you know, isolated there. So there was early indications I was maybe not meant for that field. But I, I uh, yeah, so I wanted to get to the business side. Genentech definitely was the place to, to learn that. But they were so good at the science and, and the, the development that that was also that was a big part of being there it was just to get tutored. So you were there for how long? Almost seven years. Um, and I, I, you know, I think there's a number of quote unquote golden ages at that company. Um, um, but I was there for one of them, which was I arrived just before the first positive of Aston phase three study. Uh, and oh, so this would have been like 20 years ago, 2003. I remember covering this. <laughs> yeah. So and, and, you know, and there'd been what two. I think two major phase three failures with Avastin before that. Um, and then we got the, you know, we got the Kaplan-Meier curve separations that just, you know, blew everybody away. And so I joined just before that kind of real steep, um, um, you know, sort of ascent. And then I left not long after Roche's second acquisition. So it was kind of that period of sort of peak independence, maybe for, for Genentech. And, and yeah, it was, it, was a, it was an incredible place to be a part of. Yeah, that's when um, it became the the powerhouse of oncology um, for for a good for a good long time with the antibodies Avastin, Rituxin, Herceptin. Yep, yep. And you you had you know Tarceva and Lucentis and a whole bunch of things that came in right then. Um, you know Rituxan for autoimmune and it, you know I think part of it was you had this organization that that had been powering away in the science and finally had like a whole bunch of resources too, you know, and just could really sort of pour it on. We had five, five positive phase threes and in, in five drug approvals in five years, right? It was just like, boom, 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 boom. Um, and all meaningful. So, yep. So six, seven years, this is about the length of, you know, your average graduate school career. So here, here, here you are, <laughs> you're a lawyer, but now you've been inside Genentech. Was this almost like, you know, your, uh, your PhD in the business of biotech? Yeah, no, not not PhD. I think masters would be generous, but but I I definitely I, I left there with a, a a pretty decent understanding of of kind of the way that that you do drug discovery, drug development, and um, and I think that that you know one of the things that I learned too is that you know for good reason we we train our people 
technically in in sort of increasingly narrow ways, right? If you if you're going to go through your PhD, you get to the point of being expert not just in one cell, but like one particular pathway in that cell, right? And and then when they get in the industry, we don't tend to broaden that aperture. And so when I would sit around a, a, a meeting and and everybody had their kind of view of the elephant, but it was a pretty hyper focused one. I came to realize that one of the things that I can bring is something more of that sort of synthesis of the bigger picture. And I, I think that, um, you know, if I have a contribution to make in discussions these days um, with with R&D teams, that that tends to be it. It's just like, hey, what about this piece? And it sounds like that piece over here goes with this one. Can we talk about that? And largely, it's just trying to connect dots. Right. I mean, I don't really have the ability to do anything that would generate those data, but I can, I can at least try to put them in perspective. Um, and so that's, you know, again, maybe there was a benefit to not being trained that way because it, it, it allows me to sort of have a different view of it all. Well, maybe you weren't thinking it at the time, but this ability to, um, sit in a meeting and learn the science, connect some dots to some wider context, synthesize it, and tell a story or explain it to somebody who wasn't in the meeting, this is pretty fundamental to what a, a CEO needs to be able to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And, and also to get, I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely passionate about what we do. And, and so to be able to bring that emotion and enthusiasm to bear behind a story, um, you know, is exactly what you need uh, in, in a small company role. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's, uh, I'm probably in the right job. <laughs> Now, how did you decide to leave? Where did you go next? You know, so a couple interesting lessons in, in for me. One was that as Genentech success mounted, I noticed a slight shift in the way that we were operating and making decisions. One, we were just going through more layers of decision making. Um, and, and a lot of that was driven by a shift from a, a fixation with succeeding to a fixation with not failing. Um, like, like you're like, wow, we've really done, I think this, this is incredible track record. We got to make sure we don't screw it up. Right. And, and so there was sort of this, um, conservatism that crept in. And I think it happens in almost every organization, um, because you start wanting to make sure you don't mess it up. Right. And, and so I think that, that for me, it became a little bit stifling. Like I, I really did love working with the small companies when I was a lawyer and I wanted to get back to that. And so um, I also wanted to learn new things. I think um, for me, the the place to live is on the steep part of a learning curve. And in every role, you start to plateau at some point. You know, you've learned 80% of what you're going to learn. So I had arranged to switch jobs and I was leaving business development. I was going to go do um, product development and I was going to be a lifecycle um, leader at Genentech, which is a pretty, it's almost like a business unit head um, was the way that they used to do it. It was with Avastin. And so it would have been a pretty big role and, and pretty great opportunity to learn. And then the Roche acquisition came in and they announced that in the um, post-closing transition, they would eliminate that lifecycle leader role and, and, um, and put in commercial people um, to be the lifecycle managers. And so if you, hadn't, uh, um, if you hadn't sort of had that commercial background, they wouldn't consider you for the job. So that job kind of evaporated for me. And at that point, I was like, all right, it's time to go. <laughs> It's funny to hear you say this about the large company. I had a very similar experience around the same time working at Bloomberg News, and I was covering Genentech in its final days before the Roche acquisition. So here I am at this great big media company, and there's lots of like awesome people here and processes, 
But <laughs> I mean, I found myself missing writing about little startups that were two guys and a dog that were really innovative. And, you know, they'd kind of look at me like, well, we don't do that here. <laughs> Uh, so you, you came back to like that that passion for the translation at small companies where, you know, it's it's not about protecting an existing franchise. It's about creating something new that doesn't exist. Well, and also having that more direct impact. Right. I mean, you can you can make a decision in a small organization and then, you know, say, all right, good plan. Let's do it. And then immediately implement. Right. And, and I think that that doesn't. You don't have that freedom. Um, you don't have that, um, you know, sort of risk either in a big company. But it's 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 that you know that ability to kind of really roll up your sleeves and get in and, and make a difference on the company that that also was was missing and that I was looking for. Um, okay, so you went to a series of small companies at this point through the let's call it the the 2010s um, business development. Now, you're not um, the CEO or the founder of these companies, but you're consistently working in BD, kind of leaning on that negotiating experience that you got from early on. Did you develop any sort of philosophy on how to go about this uh, consistently well, like best pit principles for negotiating? I, I do have a style. I don't know that it, it's the one that I would say um, everybody uses, but it works for me. And that, that I, I really believe in, in sort of fairly radical candor. Um, I think that, that, you know, if you're going to pull off a deal, unless it's one that's like, you know, a one-time relatively binary outcome transaction, like, you know, negotiating for a car, right? You're never going to see these people again. They're never going to see you. And it's ultimately just a dollar value we got to pick. I think that if you're in a complex negotiation like we are in all the time in, in our industry and where there's going to be a longstanding relationship between the two, I don't know why we don't just put more out on the table, right? Um, it's somehow it's like you think you can game it um, and that you know, the big companies don't know, <laughs> you know all the pressures and all the things you're trying to maximize for. And so I, I, I just found that for me, the, the approach that I've used is, is, is really to try and be as transparent as possible and, and ask the same of the other side um, and, and figure out solutions, right? Okay, we, 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 we want to work together. We think we've got a good idea here. Well, let's figure it out together. And if we can't, that actually is a pretty good indicator that maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Um, so, I, I, you know, you, you learn enough over the years to really be able to anticipate all right, problem A has solutions, you know, one, two, three, and three B, right? And and those are the common ones used in the industry. Let's talk about it. Let's just start trying to figure this out together. So that's that's kind of how I've um, adapted, I guess, is, is I really believe that, that these big complex deals work best when you get everybody in a room. I think face-to-face -face helps a lot um, because ultimately it's a relationship business and and then you know just start talking and and really try to figure out all right what do we need to do to get this done and you know obviously you can't just walk into a room and say all right my walk away number is um you know there's a certain amount of of negotiating tactics to when you make reveals about you know particular positions on particular issues but i think that at least for tabling all the things that we need to solve um big believer in just just that transparency I think there's an important long run concept here that you're touching on, which is the relationships that in all likelihood, you're probably going to see these people who are across the table from you in some other capacity in the future. Maybe they're at the big company and you're at the small company now, but the tables could be completely reversed or maybe that person goes to a venture capital firm. 
it's it's like it fosters a philosophy around relationships, like being decent to people. Don't uh, well, don't I mean, advocate for your best interest for sure, always. But um, you know, behave well, treat other people, you know, with some kind of decency, uh, because this isn't a one-time, a, a one-off, like you say with the used car dealer. No, I think it's, it's so true. And, and I, I mean, every piece of that, uh, of that statement, because it's amazing to me, having been in the industry now for, you know, whatever, 25 years to see how much people do move around. Right. And I think that, that, you know, and across different parts of the ecosystem. So for sure, um, you know, that BD person you were negotiating with a big company is now a VC, right. And, uh, you know, or, or a CEO or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's also, it goes back to something we were talking about earlier in terms of different industries have different personas. Um, part of it too, is that this is an industry where strong arguments rationally made carry a lot of weight, right? It's not an industry which is just randomly pulling positions out of the air, right? I look at, at you know, entertainment or something like that, where there's much more of kind of a, I, I mean, not a vagary, but but just there's more opinion, right? Um, it, it's more about style or, or, or art, and it's hard to say objectively this is true or not. And I think that, you know, yeah, you can be really reasonable and decent to people and still put forward intellectually strong arguments, right? And those tend to carry the day. Um, but it, but again, I think it's, yeah, it's ultimately this needs to be a collaborative business. Um, you know, it's, it's rare that anything gets done in this business solo. And so, yeah, find ways to, to kind of build those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. You can't fake it. Don't lie. No, exactly. <laughs> don't. <laughs> well, just, be, just, I mean, don't be an asshole, right? It's, it's, you know, this is, it's too long-term, it's too collaborative. And frankly, it's, it's, you know, these collaborations, these requ- you know, require a, a long-term commitment to each other, right? You both need to thrive. And, and so it's rare that you have that kind of, you know, instance where you can just treat people that way. Um, so again, I think it, 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 by, by happenstance or, or selection, I, I, I do think there's a lot of things about this industry that, that I love and that are a good fit um, that I kind of stumbled into. Okay. So you, um, you worked your way up in executive ranks. You were president at NGM. Then you were CEO at Ambus. Um, let's, let's talk about Belhara now. This is your current company. How did you arrive at this stop? Uh, what, what about this idea? appealed to you? I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'll meet with folks and, and, uh, they'll ask for advice on something, a decision or something they're making. And, and one thing I'm, you know, like to remind everybody is, you know, everything I just told you, I'm an N of one, right. You need to go and gather other data points. And I think that, that for all of us, we, we sort of, you know, care them, uh, you know, we're, we're, if you're familiar with sailing, you kind of like tack back and forth, right? You've got a point of sail, you've got a, a line you're trying to sail but because of the winds, you can't go in a straight line. And so you're trying to figure out how to get there. And for me, the, the, the one of the things that I glommed onto relatively early was I would love to be part of a sustainable platform company that has true platform nature. But just to say, it's not like one or two or three good ideas, which if they're exhausted, you got to go back to square one, but where you really do have kind of a engine that you can keep cranking. And even if you have a misfire, you can still crank again, right? It doesn't damage the engine. It doesn't make that next crank, um, you know, sort of less 
possible. And so, um, yeah, I was, I was doing a couple interim CEO roles. I was consulting, um, working with a couple venture firms, looking around and, um, and I came across Belhara. I hadn't worked with Versant before. They're the, the sole investor and, and they were the company that founded, uh, the, uh, Belhara and, and incubated it. And then I also got to talking with, um, a few of the co-founders and, and, uh, Ben Cravat, who's, um, you know, that, that, you know, pillar of, 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 uh, chemoproteomics and, and Stuart Schreiber, chemical biology, kind of godfathers of the, the fields. And I realized that this was, this was what I'd been looking for, right? It was, it was a blank slate company. I was the first employee, uh, and I had a chance to go and, and kind of not only build it culturally the way I thought a company should be built, but also that it was a platform that definitely had that kind of longevity and potential. Let's start for people who are not super familiar, even real basic with some definitions about a platform. What do you really, what, what is a true platform versus one of these others that kind of looks like one, but isn't? Yeah. And, and I do think we threw a platform around a little too casually. I, I, in my mind, a, a platform is a, a company that has an opportunity to take independent bets and, and discovering new therapeutic entities, right? That there is the opportunity to keep coming up with new ideas, typically along a similar, you know, kind of vein, but it, it is not really, it doesn't have a visible horizon where it ends. Um, it, it has that chance to keep coming up with new ideas based on the fundamental technology. So it's not, I mean, in my mind, you know, if you have a particular biology area that you're plumbing, I don't think of that as a platform. I know I'm being a little tight with that definition, but because if that biology doesn't pan out, you're probably done. You know, you got to go back and find a new place to be. So even if it's a, um, you know, I guess if the biology is broad enough, maybe, um, but if it's a particular pathway, for example, right, I don't see that as, as sort of being a platform. But an example, I'm thinking of something like, say, L-nylum with siRNAs. Like you've developed some basic um, assays for like how your oligos are behaving in the cell. You develop some delivery technology that gives you the concentrations you need and you apply that to your first biology program, but then like you don't have to reinvent those first couple wheels every single time. You get to build off of that uh, that that hard work you did. And so you can turn that crank more quickly and, and with a higher probability of success further on. That's a platform. And, and each subsequent crank is its own independent experiment. So failure on on one crank doesn't necessarily reflect on the on the outcome of the next crank, right? That you really can keep taking shots. And L9 is a great example, right? You, you get to that point, you validated enough of the approach, and now you can think about creative ways to apply it and, and creative places to do it. And so, um, yeah, and so Belhara passes okay. that test. So you saw you saw a true platform here with Belhara. You mentioned chemoproteomics. Let's define that again for people who are not super familiar. What is that? So it's it's the um, it's the study of how you have chemicals and, and proteins interacting. And and uh, Ben was one of the, the the kind of co-founders in that field. In particular, what he came up with was this ability to see and characterize the interaction between a chemical and a protein using mass spectrometry. And so the light signature that bounces off a chemical 
it bounces off a protein is unique based on the structure of that chemical or that protein. And so what you can do is you can see the interactions between those, between a chemical and a protein with a degree of fidelity and accuracy that, that we've never been able to have before. Most of the time, what you would do is you would assay that interaction indirectly. And you'd say, all right, because we can't get a different chemical to bind Therefore, that original chemical is bound to the protein, right? Um, because we know the second chemical is is a is a bound as a binder to that protein. Or, you know, you would uh, overexpress a protein in a system, and then you say, all right, because we have suppression of that protein in the system, therefore that chemical is binding. But these are all sort of indirect ways of proving the interaction. And sometimes you could do things that did have that kind of accuracy. But they're like crystallizing, right? And, and getting a crystal structure of a protein and a chemical um, bound together. But that's really, really hard. And, and it takes a lot of time. And for some interactions, it's impossible, right? You have disordered regions of proteins, which are just uncrystallizable. Other things that people are doing still can be done, but nothing that has yet been found that does it as rapidly and as effectively as, as, as the sort of using this light imagery to sort of characterize. So you have these mass spectrometers that throw off gajillions of, of, you know, bits of data, because what you do is you essentially throw a bunch of chemicals and proteins together, and then you begin characterizing through a bunch of pretty complicated techniques, um, what chemical interacts with what protein and in what fashion. And what, just to back up a bit, what we're looking for are small molecule chemical compounds the, the old-fashioned kind that can be made into simple pills you take by mouth, and uh, they distribute in predictable ways throughout all the tissues, and you can take them once a day, maybe. Uh, or, uh, and, and you're looking for new targets on proteins, because there's, I mean, there are a number of medicines on the shelf today that target, you know, a certain number of these proteins that were sort of the, the low-hanging fruit, proverbially. But there's a whole lot of other targets out there that we just haven't found yet. This is what you're looking for. Yeah, and, and you know, um, <laughs> not being a scientist at times, I can I can just watch it all with amusement because you know there's there's sort of this um, uh, you know, I don't know rivalry or, or um, perceived rivalry in, in, in the chemist versus the biologist, right? And if you're ever in a small molecule company and then they're um, you know debating why we're not making progress on a project, and the and the chemists are like, well, if the biologist gave us better assays, and the biologist like, well, if the chemist gave us better compounds, right? And so they do approach the world with different eyes. Um, what's interesting is that there's no doubt at the moment the biologists are winning in terms of our understanding of how our bodies run. Right. So there's roughly 20,000 proteins that that run Luke. Right. And, and then there's complexes of those proteins together. And so maybe, you know, maybe there's 35, 40,000 or more kind of possible protein targets that we could be thinking about. Um, and of those, um, all the approved small molecule drugs in the United States, I think, only target 600 proteins. And then we have evidence in literature of maybe chemicals binding to another 1,800 or so proteins. So there are, you know, upwards of, of 17, 18,000 proteins that, that we know of. And in that case, we probably have, um, you know, it's debated, but somewhere in the neighborhood called 5,000 proteins where we have absolute evidence that either from genetics or clinical data or really strong preclinical data that those proteins are playing a definitive role 
in a human disease or condition. And so there are sort of, you know, call it 5,000 proteins sitting there, biologically validated, and it's not for a lack of trying, right? For years and years, the industry has been trying to figure out, can we get a toehold on these proteins that a small molecule would bind to it and, and modulate it? And so it's part of the reason for the renaissance you brought up at the beginning is that it's because we need to <laughs> figure this out, right? There's too much biology sitting there untapped um, for us not to. And so that's, you know, that's part of the thesis of a company like Balhara is that there is, there's quite literally no visible limit to the biology that needs to be explored right now and, and kind of conquered. If you like listening to The Long Run, you will love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular front Friday Front Points column that covers the major issues and events of the week, and insightful coverage of current topics from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And listeners in the Boston and Cambridge area, I'm going to be in town January 23rd for a big event for the Timmerman Traverse for Damon Running Cancer Research Foundation. It's called Bridging the Gap, and it's organized by Sufyan Abulhuda, a member of my next Kilimanjaro team that's on a mission to raise $1 million for cancer research. At this event, I'll moderate a conversation with Phil Sharp of MIT and Vicky Sato of Denali Therapeutics and Veer Biotechnology. This event is a fundraiser for Damon Runyon's National Network of Bold and Brave Young Cancer Researchers. An outstanding lineup of scientists and entrepreneurs make this a can't-miss event. Get your tickets now. I'm including a link to the registration page in the show notes for this episode on TimmermanReport.com. See you there. So you're looking at these... um, other toeholds <laughs> that might be there. Uh, and you mentioned Ben Cravat at Scripps, uh, one of the co-founders of this company, was involved with a previous company. Maybe we should start there for a little bit of context, Vividion Therapeutics. Um, they had uh, a system for looking for some of what they call these cryptic pockets on proteins, these unexplored or unbound um, toeholds, if you will. Uh, and I believe they could, they had this nifty little trick to look for cysteine amino acids. They had like a, a search engine that could look for just that one building block on proteins where you might be able to make a small molecule binder. And that, that had some success. Like they were acquired by Bayer for over a billion dollars. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe even the better measure of success, that company is still running and as I understand it, making tremendous progress on a number of programs um, heading into the clinic, uh, both on their own and with some of their previous partners, Roche and, and um, Celgene BMS. So, yeah, it, 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 and so the short of it, I'm trying to come up with a least technical explanation, but, but so that, that mass spectrometry interrogation that I described, turns out that the, the chemical binding of, of that molecule, small molecule to that protein is relatively fragile. Um, and, and if you don't have a really strong um, binding effect, it won't stand up to that mass spectrometry interrogation. All that light that you're blasting um, will, will sort of disaggregate the, the, the compounds um, binding to each other. And so what, what 
Vividian did, and a number of other companies, um, including ones that the previous ones that Ben had had created, Abide Therapeutics um, uh, and ActiveX before it. They they needed to use a covalent bond, and so that's a you know irreversible chemical um, binding, and it works in the sense that that then it, it, you can go and put it through the mass spectrometry. The challenge is that not many drugs are covalent um, small molecules. It, it, an irreversible permanent binding event um, doesn't work in in certain areas of biology. It's inappropriate. Um, you know, if you think about something like you know, immunology inflammation, where you want to have moderate degrees of, of impact and not have a sledgehammer, um, it can be a challenge. Other areas like oncology, it's a perfect fit, right? We would love nothing better than to have a permanent binding to a cancer cell that, that's going to take it down, right? So the, the, the challenge is that with their approach, cysteine directed, as you mentioned, is that it, it narrows the number of targets they can see, right? So if, if you think about, you know, kind of visibility of pockets, um, you know, maybe 35, 40% of, of the pockets that we're able to see in the world um, have a cysteine residue. And um, only certain types of binding mechanisms are appropriate for covalent. And so the trick that Belhara was able to industrialize came out of... Um, a, a lab, another lab at Scripps that Chris Parker uh, runs. So, can, can we can we just pause here for a second because I want to uh, insert a piece here about covalent binding small molecules have had some success uh, in, in, in for cancer. The ibrutinib or Imbruvica is one of the best examples aimed at PTK. And I believe that that works in part because, well, you can sledgehammer the BTK. It's for the treatment of cancer. And there's not really severe side effects from that because, because of that, that target itself. Um, so there's a, case where it's, there's a case where it's appropriate. And that's a perfectly good discovery platform, covalent binders against targets that are, you know, so, like so unique, I guess, to the cancer and not really on uh, healthy tissues like the heart, say. <laughs> Though uh, aspirin is a covalent inhibitor, right? And so there are cases where it makes sense and it works. Um, they're, they're fewer and further between. Um, and so what I would say is this, we have nothing but respect for the other chemoproteomics companies and the approach they're taking, and they will find um, opportunities that we're not gonna pursue. And I, I wish them nothing but the best, right? And I but ben, ben looked at this and thought, okay, like there's all this other space out there for us to explore. Can we do it with non, a non-covalent binding? So, in other words, a um, well, this is where we get you know, a little bit of danger in you know not being scientists. But like this is where dynamic equilibrium with the target is uh, an important concept to understand. Where most of your small molecules that are non-covalent binders, they they kind of touch the target and they're, they're they're on and off. They spend some time on and off of the target, and that. That can be exactly uh, like the kind of delivering the kind of therapeutic profile that you want, especially for these um, chronically administered um, diseases where like the safety profile needs to be really clean. And it, like if there's a little bit of off target effect, you can kind of get away with it. <laughs> there's a w w with a non covalent binder um, if you get the dose right. This is 
This is part of what the, you, your guys think about, right? Yeah, it's it's a little more of a finesse move, right? You know, there's a number of functions in the body where we don't want to just turn it off. We we just want to modulate it. You know, it's either amp it up or or most often turn it down a little bit. And so, um, and that may vary from patient to patient and from you know level of condition, but also you know just the effects of their body, right? And so having it having the ability to raise or lower the dose and have that have effect, you know, physiologically is often what you need. And, and there's also different kinds of ways that chemicals will bind that, that, again, gives you a little bit, you can have gain of function, you could turn something on, right, which is rarely the case with a covalent inhibitor. Um, you know, you can have osteoarch binding, there's, there's a number of different things that, that you have available to you with a, a non-covalent. Um, they also are, are sort of more, um, typically, they have a, have a, a more um, sort of you know, sort of slight binding activity. So you can see pockets that maybe aren't quite as, as sort of clear. Um, and, and that ability to just nudge things sometimes is, is, you know, the characterization that, that you're looking for. Okay. So what did you see from Ben? What, what did he have and his, the co-founders that got you excited that this was actually ready to start a company around? Yeah. So one of the things I love about this company is that we have four co-founders Two of them are first-time co-founders, and Chris Parker, John Taharo, they're both at Scripps. John's an immunologist. Chris was in Ben's lab as a postdoc and then created his own lab. Chris came up with a fundamental idea here, which was instead of having this irreversible bond come with the, the chemical that you're trying to profile, attach it to the back of it and have the chemical you're trying to profile be non-covalent. And so you can have a drug-like compound that has non-covalent interactions, have that go ahead, interact with the protein. And then once the interaction has happened, shine a wavelength of UV light across the cell. It activates that, that tag at the back that then locks on covalently to the protein. And so it's this, this neat trick because what you get is the best of both worlds. You get that non-covalent interaction that you want, that you haven't been able to screen effectively. And then you lock the compound in place on the protein so that you can then do the mass spec characterization and see exactly which chemical is binding where on which protein. That was the trick that Chris came up with working with Ben. And that's the basis for the company. It's sort of 80% similar, but that 20% difference is, is kind of what sets Spellhara apart. The proteins don't get degraded in this case. You shine that, that pro, the, fo- the light on it and it can tell you whether that binding interaction has occurred. Yeah, it's what would happen is if you if you didn't have this this sort of tag on the on the chemical, when you went to to characterize the chemical protein binding in the mass spec, they would disaggregate and you wouldn't be able to see it. And so that's the trick is that by by locking it on irreversibly for the mass spec, you can see these interactions that to date have been very very elusive. And it's working, right? It's it's given us a chance to sort of uh, see things. I mean, it, it's kind of uh, back to that. What was the movie? The Sixth Sense, right? We see things other people can't, right? You know, um, and that's that's the cool part about the platform. Okay, now let's bring this back to uh, your friends at Genentech, who we talked about earlier. Um, they they became aware of, uh, or maybe they knew about this even before you did, for all I know. <laughs> they were in conversation about the same time I was, so they were beginning to to dig into the company in parallel, um, which is kind of fun. How did um, did you two, the, the Belhara, the startup, and Genentech decide to work together? 
one of the great things about Genentech and companies like it is that they have they have the capacity to make long term bets on biology. And, you know, they can pursue projects for decades, right? Saying, look, we, we really know this biology is a clear driver of disease. Let's figure out how to get at it. And they have that endurance. And so what they saw in us was the opportunity to try a really different approach for finding these binding pockets on proteins that they had high degrees of confidence are driving disease, but they haven't succeeded on yet. And with a different enough approach, it made a total sense for them, right? Was to say, all right, let's, let's give Belhara some projects where we have a ton of data. We have all kinds of supporting assays and, and reagents. Like we can give Belhara a cell line. It's one of the things we didn't talk about, but one of the other differences about the way we work is we do everything in whole cells. And so we only want to see the proteins in their natural states doing their endogenous work. Um, we don't think that characterizing a protein sort of standalone, it makes sense. You're, you're not going to see it doing its job. And proteins change. They're like balls of yarn kind of tangled up and they, they open, they shift, they bind other proteins. And so we wanted to see these things in their natural state. And companies like Genentech have cell lines that they think best recapitulate human disease, like either engineered or they have patient samples, um, things that they've done to kind of say, all right, this is... This is the place to look for how to drug this target if you're going to find it. And so that was sort of how it came together was they had familiarity with Avidian. Um, Roche has a very successful collaboration with Avidian. And so the approach was already on their radar. And when we came along and said, hey, we're, we're a lot like that, but different. And it gives you opportunities, particularly in things like neurology and immunology, um, cancer immunotherapy to do things that probably wouldn't be the right fit with other approaches. Um, that, that it sort of just came together um, you know, pretty, pretty well. And they gave you some of these targets and challenged you to like see what you can do? They, it, was, it was one of the things that, that first got my attention because we were fortunate. We had a number of companies interested in us um, from the get-go because, again, we're standing on the shoulders of companies that have been doing this for a while and been succeeding at it. And so there was already validation of this approach, but an awareness that this distinction we were pursuing was meaningful. And so we had a number of companies. We asked them, why don't you propose to us what are the projects you'd want to work on together? Essentially, you bring the biology, we'll bring the chemical screening, and let's, you know, try to succeed together. So they submitted a list of projects to us. And this is where having some familiarity with the company was really great because I looked down this list and it's like a who's who of Genentech research, right? It's, it's their top, you know, PIs basically. And the projects are ones that those people have been working on for better parts of their careers, right? And so you had these really cool projects, tough, tough areas of biology, but like we're going to be working with world leaders on trying to crack them. And so it was... Yeah, it's a challenge, um, but it was also like, again, back to the idea of why do you do this? Like, th this is exactly what you want to work on. So it was some of their best people. These were obviously, um, you're not identifying these targets publicly, I don't think, but uh, they are, I think you've said before to me that they're well-known. <laughs> you know that if you can drug these targets, they're going to be important for uh, a large number of patients with serious diseases. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it. I think we talked about this one, one, one time in the years past, but, you know, we had like a single page front and back shopping list in Genentech BD. 
of all the top targets and things we were interested in um, and, you know, by disease area. And then I remember years later seeing another company's, um, you know, similar shopping list. And, and it was just funny because there's like 90% homology, right? I mean, it's not like any of these companies are really pursuing things the others don't know about. We all agree, right? What would be the game changers? And, and so, um, it, it's more the chance to work with a company that has the resources and the expertise, um, to say, all right, this is the counter screen, or this is the confirmatory assay, or this is the cell line to start in. And yeah, it, it's, it's not, we're not going to disclose the, the projects, but, um, it's, it's really, these are, these are hard, but if you win, they will be hugely meaningful. Now you decided to partner with Genentech early on, like at the time you announced your series a, uh, you, uh, of $50 million, you announced a partnership with Genentech, which I think they brought in 80 million up front. So they gave you a good amount of uh, operating capital to um, pursue these targets. You announced these uh, the, the financing and the deal in parallel. Well, did I, did you did you worry at all about maybe partnering a little too early before you've had a chance to uh, build more value, or what were your thoughts on why partner now? I, I think that you know it goes back to this idea of of preferring a true platform. Because, you know, if you've, if you've got a more limited set of assets, then I think the question of partnering early becomes a bigger and more challenging one, right? Because if you only have a few things, giving one of those away or giving rights away early may significantly, you know, handicap you and, and sort of capitate your value. We didn't see it that way because... Um, almost our only limitation is biology, right? And since there are so many targets in so many areas and some of the things that Genentech wanted to work on are ones we're not going to, right? So we're going to focus on building an internal pipeline of oncology, immunology, but they also wanted to work in neurology and and cancer immunotherapy. Um, And even within oncology and immunology, there's so many targets. So you had, you you saw plenty of opportunity. You weren't giving away the store too early. If anything, they were going to help us learn how to best, you know, sort of use this platform on really, really hard targets. And and we could learn together. Now, you mentioned that there were other pharma companies that were aware of this work and interested uh, in in working with you. Of course, that helps with (laughs) negotiating uh, to have multiple bidders. Um, some people might be surprised to hear this, given that, you know, we've heard uh, about uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the uh, concerns around limited time for exclusivity and price negotiations from the U.S. government, uh, particularly affecting this class of medicine, as opposed to, say, monoclonal antibodies or, or more established biologics. Are, are, has that been a real dynamic uh, that you've encountered with companies? Are they worried about this or... Or does that dampen your prospects in any way? So I, I do think IRA is going to have a big impact on the industry. And I think as it does, I think that that our, you know, we're already, I, I work with California Life Sciences. I know bio is similarly, you know, kind of engaged. I, I think we're all trying to make the case to uh, the government that, that you got to be careful, right, not to stifle innovation and, and having this effect over here is going to ripple through and, and impact small companies. So I go to the Hill um, annually, at least to, to make that case. I think that eventually that will get shifted because people are going to realize you're having a a major impact. Right now, what I would say is that for small molecule companies, it's probably putting a discount on some of our future projects, right? And and so maybe if if a company had a choice and was valuing an antibody versus a small molecule, theoretically, that had, you know, sort of an equal profile, um, they should be willing to to invest more, pay more, right, in, in, in 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 the biologic because of that. But I think it's also, you know, it's important to remember that 
there's still very significant returns you can earn on a high impact medicine. And I think that what I would say is that it only makes the need to invest in game changing medicines more important, right? You cannot do uh, me too's in, in this industry anymore. And I think particularly in small molecules, right? They have to have a pronounced benefit for patients when they hit the market. And so that's, that's part of why I think it does still work for Belhar quite well, because we're doing almost entirely novel first in class sort of unprecedented targets. Right. Um, and you know, if you win, I don't know, pull one out of the air, Fox a one, right. This is, this is a target that in, in the oncology fields, universally people would agree that is a hugely impactful uh, target if we can if we can drug it so I think you have to work on those things that would be um, that kind of, of of kind of game changers if you succeed and at that point I'm, I'm confident even though we're 10 15 years away from market that there will be a system that rewards that I, you know maybe that's my you know <laughs> startup CEO enthusiasm and optimism but I, I do believe as an as a as a country and as a system uh, as an industry we will figure that out because it makes no sense to to kind of uh, you know kind of undercut that innovation and, and we'll get to the right place on it eventually well theoretically I mean if you come up with a powerful new medicine for an autoimmune disease or a neurological condition, the, the physician or the patient doesn't really care if it's a small molecule or a biologic. I mean, other care, whether it's injectable or oral, like that makes a difference. But like I, for someone to say, like, we're just going to pay a lot less for something because it's taken orally and it's a small molecule. That's a, that doesn't make any sense. No. And I, I think the world we're going to have to move to, as you look at sort of accelerating healthcare costs against societally is, is we're gonna have to look at what's the total value uh, impact of, of a medicine. Right. And if you can, if you can avert, you know, major costs down the road, at some point, that's going to have to become part of the value calculation. It's headed that way already. And so, again, I think if you can, if you can change the course of a life, um, particularly, you know, one that is going to have debilitating or deadly, you know, future uh, that you avoid, I, th that's going to that's going to be valuable in any in any world I can see. We'll have to find a way to reward it. Um, OK, now. It's been almost a year since we talked when you came out of stealth mode. Um, you know, you haven't get made a lot of news since. That's totally normal. You're a preclinical company and you'll be ready to announce things on your own timetable. You've got money, as I referenced earlier. Can you talk a little bit about the, <laughs> the, the disconnect, I guess, between what's happening like day to day in the lab, like what, what's really going on versus the perception of biotech in the marketplace as this has been a really hard year and everything like valuations are depressed. Management teams have been making some having to make some hard decisions. Um, what, why do you remain optimistic? I mean, it's, I mean, to, to, to paraphrase Hal Barron, you have to be right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we gotta be the most optimistic people in the world to show up at the office every day, you know, with a 99% failure rate, you know, and, and, uh, and believe we're going to be the ones that succeed. But I, no, I, I, I think part of it is, you know, having now been through a few of, of these downturns in the industry, I know that this is a, you know, this is a temporary state. These, this, this too shall pass. Um, it's disappointing and hard right now because of the fact that I think the science is better than ever, right? You know, it, it, there may be a small molecule renaissance going on, but there's frankly a renaissance almost everywhere you look, right? And there's a number of new modalities that are ascendant. And, you know, whether that's even in the small molecule world, you know, protein degraders, you know, heterobifunctional kind of approaches or, or 
radio ligand therapies, um, ADCs. I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting things that are beginning to work. And, and so that the armamentarium, the toolbox that we're handing physicians of patients is really, really impressive. So it's hard, I think, in the face of that, I think as an industry to see such a downturn and not reflect that reality. Um, but, you know, look, we get over our skis on valuation. We get over our skis on, on kind of fundraising. And then the market corrects. And unfortunately, I think that the current correction is matching up with macroeconomic conditions that are really kind of making it painful. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm optimistic because it's a long game we play. Um, I think there's still capital out there. Um, it's not to say there isn't sort of on, a, on an individual company or individual person level some real pain right now. And, and um, yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, it, it, we're fortunate at Belhar in that we're, we're being spared a lot of that because of, of some of the things we did. But, um, you know, we feel it, right? I mean, I, I, I see it in, in interactions with companies and, and investors. Um, and it's, it's having, well, so, it, you know, quick anecdote. Um, you know, one of the funny things about this ecosystem is we all go off to like our own little meetings. And, and so, um, you know, the, the CEOs gather sometimes and I'm there, uh, the investors gather and I'm not. And, uh, and so one of these investors I was talking to was at a meeting where there were some LPs, um, you know, and, and, um, particularly one that was doing like a fireside chat and it was a, a portfolio manager for one of the big, um, you know, big university endowments. And essentially what they said was we're carving back our investment in life sciences significantly because we're not seeing the returns. And, you know, that story was, was resonant for me because it means the pain is spreading, right? It's one thing when it's just the company's having a hard time raising, but when the investors are then having a hard time raising, it suggests some of this pain is going to be around a little while, right? And I, I um, met with a banker last week who was like, "Well, we think twenty four, you know, mid twenty four is a good time for a, you know, a rebound." I'm like, "Yeah, right." As we're heading into an election where you know one of the candidates may be imprisoned, um, I'm sure that's going to go smoothly. Um, so I, I do think that we're in for a little bit more of this, but it'll come back around. It always does. But at the same time, you know, we've got drugs against KRAS, one of the classic targets of oncology that was long thought undruggable. And if you and I were having this conversation five years ago, definitely 10 years ago, we would have thought, well, no way. Nobody's going to be able to do that. Well, now they can. <laughs> and, and there's a lot more coming behind that because of, as you referenced, that greater understanding of the target biology. And, and that benefits everybody. Like that, that speed of learning, that, that increase uh, that's raising the floor, the knowledge of biology making it making some of these undruggable targets tractable that this is why i open with the light about a small molecule renaissance not only do the biology is getting better but the ability to identify these precise small molecules that can hit exactly the pocket that you want uh, that wasn't that didn't exist um when we were getting started in this business no it's it's i mean it truly is amazing how it's how it's coming along and i think there's a lot more to come um and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Again, I mentioned sort of the work, a little bit of the work I do for advocacy for the industry and, and, 
yeah, we're we're not popular. You know, we're living down in the in the the low ranges of uh, public opinion, and it's hard to re reconcile. You know, what you just described with that, and I do think that's part of the problem, right? Is that you know we don't have a lot of defenders out there saying, no, these people are doing really good work, and we need to value it appropriately. Um, and and look, investors are nothing if not observant, right? And and so they're 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 taking the temperature of the market and seeing you know a lack of enthusiasm from the generalists and. Yeah, I, I, it is. Um, I, I still believe, uh, you know, that the work we're doing has incredible value, and that it will get sorted out. But it, it is not an easy time right now. Again, it, it's hard to reconcile what you just said with, with the reality that we're all living in. Um, but the other reality is that you are not seeing returns the investors need, right? And so they're going elsewhere um, to find them for now. And so it's the pendulum swings back. It always does, but it may be it may be a little while. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, stick to it, Jeff. And uh, I look forward to talk talking with you, uh, getting an update when this this platform starts to mature and starts throwing off products that are a little easier to evaluate in the investment world with clinical data and, and all the rest. Uh, thank you for joining me on The Long Run. Appreciate it so much, Lou. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>